Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, Iran did it. Iran confirmed that it unintentionally shot down Flight 752. This is an extremely serious matter. Canada and the world still have many questions, questions that must be answered. In a stunning admission, Iran says it shot down the plane, killing all 176 on board, including 57 Canadians. But what should Canada do now? Will Iran let all investigators and family members in? Will there be reparations and a response for the deadly mistake? Transport Minister Mark Garneau joins us. Plus, sanctions? Shooting down a civilian aircraft is horrific. Iran must take full responsibility. Canada will not rest until we get the accountability, justice, and closure that the families deserve. Should Canada follow the U.S. and crank up sanctions on Iran, or is it time to open relations after a seven-year silence? The former Chief of the Defense Staff, Tom Lawson, and retired Major General Dave Fraser join us, plus the former National Security Advisor, Dick Fadden, and the former Public Safety Minister, Ralph Goodale, both weigh in on the scrub. Then, ready to run? Good afternoon. The first woman jumps into the Conservative leadership race, but can she stand up against the potential big names coming? Leadership candidate Marilyn Gladder joins us with her plan for victory. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. They shot the plane down. After days of denial, Iran finally admits what Canada and the U.S. have said all along, an Iranian missile down Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752, killing all on board. But Iran says it was unintentional. Late Friday night, the Iranian government announced that it mistook the flight for a military target after it said it had turned toward a sensitive military center of Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Now, the commander of that guard, a senior general, took full responsibility for the tragedy, saying, quote, I wish I were dead. The Iranian government has promised all responsible will be prosecuted. Do we believe that? Prime Minister Trudeau did speak to Iranian President Hassan Rouhani on Saturday and demanded that Canada get full access to the ongoing investigation starting on Saturday. I reiterated to President Rouhani that it is absolutely necessary that Canada participate in this investigation. We expect the full cooperation of Iranian authorities. The Prime Minister said he was furious about the tragedy. I am, of course, uh, outraged and uh, furious that uh, families across this country are grieving the loss of their loved ones, that the uh, Iranian-Canadian community is suffering so greatly that all Canadians are shocked and appalled at the senseless loss of life. So now what? Will there be consequences, compensation, justice? How does Canada respond? With more sanctions or by reestablishing diplomatic ties in Iran to help the families? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Transport Minister, Mark Gardo. Minister Garno, I appreciate you joining us with all the information. The key first question is access. When will investigators and families get access to the site in Iran? Well, we're working as fast as we can, uh, Evan, to ensure that uh, the team that is on its way over there, and so far three have received visas, but that uh, we expect the remainder of them to receive their visas very shortly. And once our team is on the ground, 
We'll be able to uh, organize that and answer those questions. In the meantime, we also have uh, Minister Mendicino at Immigration working uh, with the uh, relatives of the families to, uh, to try to speed up the process of getting visas for them uh, so that they can also uh, uh, go over there uh, as required. Okay, so do we just have any timelines on that, sir? Uh, is it days? Is it weeks? Uh, we're working as quickly as possible uh, with, uh, with Iran, and we hope that it's going to be uh, a matter of days. We hope, but uh, we have to see. Uh, you talk of working with Iran. We have no diplomatic ties there. I know Mr. Prime Minister Trudeau spoke with President Rouhani, and there's been a lot of back and forth. I guess a lot of people are wondering why trust Iran. They lied about shooting this airline down for days and days. How Does Canada trust Iran? Well, I think the conversation between uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and uh, President Rouhani yesterday was very key uh, in this case. Uh, Iran, as you know, has now admitted that uh, they fired a missile and they have pledged that they will be fully cooperative in this, uh, not only with respect to the families, and that is our primary motivation here, is to, is to answer the needs of the families, uh, the Canadians, the 57, uh, but also that uh, they will uh, also uh, uh, cooperate fully with respect to the investigation so that we can uncover all of the facts. Uh, and believe me, Canada is going to make sure that that happens. Uh, the Iranians say it was a mistake. Uh, Mr. Trudeau was asked about that, and he, he didn't necessarily buy that. Um, does Canada believe that Iran shot that plane down as a mistake, a military error? What we know for sure is that uh, Iran has admitted that they've fired the missile. And at the moment, uh, what we want to do is to shed all of the light on exactly what happened. Uh, and we'll see in the days to come. It is a question that is not uh, fully resolved, but it is something that uh, we believe that in the days to come we'll be able to shed light on. And, and that's why we need this comprehensive investigation. It's very early. I appreciate that. The families haven't even seen their lost loved ones. There's, so there's a lot to get there. But there is going to be a lot of questions about compensation. Will Canada demand compensation from Iran? We believe the compensation uh, is uh, something that uh, has to be dealt with. Uh, we're working with international uh, partners, our the other countries that are involved here. We believe that the uh, relatives of the victims of this tragic accident deserve compensation. The details need to be worked out. That is something that we are mindful of in the days and weeks to come. I understand there's condolences and then there's, um, you know, uh, you know, consequences, though. We've got to get to consequences. Um, what consequences should Iran face right now? Well, you, you decide on that question once you know exactly what has happened. And it is still early days, Evan. We need to understand fully everything that happened, not only to the aircraft itself, but all of the circumstances surrounding it. So, we need to get those answers definitively so that we can proceed from there on the question that you asked. Uh, but, you know, there have been calls from conservatives, for example, to have to join the United States and crank up sanctions on Iran, to list, using the Magnitsky rules, some high-ranking Iranians uh, as terrorists or and or cut off and have sanctions against them. Will Canada do that? We're going to see what uh, exactly happened uh, in this tragic event. We feel that we need clarity on exactly what happened before we uh, answer that question. All right. Well, is there any thought to reestablishing diplomatic ties with Iran?
We have said very clearly, Minister Champagne and the Prime Minister, that, uh, you know, we need to try to uh, de-escalate the situation that exists in the Middle East so that we don't have tragic events like the one that happened uh, on the 8th of January with Flight 752. So Canada is certainly very much willing to uh, help in trying to de-escalate the tensions that have existed for a long time in the region. And uh, I think that uh, that is the approach that uh, we are taking. The fact that the Prime Minister spoke with uh, President Rouhani yesterday is historical. This is something that has not happened for a very, very long time, especially since we broke off relations back in 2012. We feel that it is important to work very hard on de-escalating the situation to find out if we can bring more, uh, more peace in that region because uh, it's having terrible consequences. I, I appreciate that, but the, the Iranians, you know that their foreign policy has been to support many, multiple terror organizations. It's not like it would be nice to, de, you know, to in some way de-escalate. But is it naive to trust the Iranians? I appreciate the tragic nature of what's happened and the need to get families access. But would it be naive to try to trust Iran now to de-escalate? I don't think it's ever naive to try to uh, change things, and certainly what has happened uh, has had not only a profound effect on Canada in this particular case, several other countries as well, but also perhaps on Iran itself. But we'll see. We'll see in the days to come whether this is one of those moments uh, where there is a a shift in the way uh, that international relations are conducted in that part of the world. We don't know. Uh, we always can hope, but uh, we also have to be realistic. Uh, the U.S. did not inform Canada about the assassination of General Qassem Soleimani, as we now know. Should the U.S. have informed all of its allies, like Canada, that they should not have, or any nationals, should not be in the area, they should not be taking flights due to the imminent threats and the dangers like we've just seen? I think it would have been preferable to be warned. And I say it in the context in which uh, there are Canadians over there alongside uh, uh, our U.S. counterparts in Iraq. And, uh, uh, and we are the two closest nations with respect to our security requirements. Okay, but, but should they have informed Canada? Because we've got men and women on the ground in Iraq, because they are in harm's way, uh, and I appreciate we're close allies, but should the U.S. have informed Canada more specifically about the, th the imminent threats due to the assassination? Uh, we would have, as I say, uh, preferred to have been uh, informed about it, uh, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, have they made any assurances in the future to give us a heads up? I think that uh, our relationship uh, has uh, been a very good one, uh, particularly with respect to, with respect to uh, security matters, and uh, we are uh, confident that uh, we will continue to be very close allies and share information uh, in, in, as we go forward. And Minister Garneau, does this conflict between Iran and the United States, now Canadians and others have been uh, horrifically uh, collateral damage, but does this change Canada's uh, profile or commitment to the NATO missions in uh, Iraq? No, it doesn't. Uh, but uh, those are questions that the Minister of Defense uh, will be uh, will be uh, looking at in in the in the days and the weeks to come. Uh, we uh, uh, accepted a mission in Iraq, which we are leading, which is to help to train Iraqi forces uh, so that they 
uh, are able to themselves deal with, uh, with uh, the threat of uh, uh, ISIS, Daesh, uh, in that part of the world. And we feel that that is a mission that Canada uh, undertook because we felt that we could do something uh, useful to help to uh, bring greater stability to Iraq. Um, in the days to come, uh, I'm sure that uh, there'll be the opportunity for Canada to reflect on that, but I believe that that fundamental uh, motivation for helping Iraq uh, remains. Uh, last question. Uh, would, would, does Canada, will Canada push for an international tribunal to get some kind of justice and accountability for this tragic event? These are questions that need to be answered in, in the days to come, and I think a lot of it will depend on uh, the openness uh, of, uh, of Iran as we proceed forward and uh, as we uh, seek the answers uh, behind the, the tragic event. Again, our motivation here is that so much uh, pain and, and uh, tragedy was inflicted on the families of 57 and the friends of 57 Canadians, and we are determined to uh, get to the bottom of this so that uh, the issue of justice, which the Prime Minister brought up, will also be addressed. Uh, all right, we'll be watching closely, sir. I appreciate your time, Mr. Garnell. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Coming up next on the program, was the missile strike really unintentional? As Iran now says, should Canada slap sanctions on Iran? How does this kind of horrific tragedy happen? Retired Major General Dave Fraser and the former Chief of the Defense Staff General Tom Lawson dig into that next. Stay right here with Question Period. Earlier this morning, I spoke with President Rouhani of Iran. I told him that Iran's admission that its own armed forces unintentionally shot down Flight 752 is an important step towards providing answers for families, but I noted that many more steps must be taken. Iran's admission of guilt has fundamentally changed the equation. So what are Canada's next steps? First, of course, there's helping the families. But how does Canada hold Iran accountable for this tragedy? And how does a tragedy like this actually happen? Let's find out. Joining me now is retired Major General Dave Fraser, who served as NATO commander in Afghanistan, and the former Chief of the Defense Staff General Tom Lawson. Gentlemen, good to have you here. And I know you all share our thoughts for the families who lost so many loved ones. Uh, General Lawson, let me just start with you. Uh, Iran admits they did it. A surface-to-air missile knocked out this. No one can figure out how the heck that happened. Walk us through how this system may have mistakenly, if that's what the Iranians did, mistakenly taken out this plane. Yeah, in short, it's, it's the fog of war. Uh, what you've got is you've got uh, conscripts or people of some level uh, in the military running a very complicated system, air defense system, uh, who are jittery in the fog of war. And at the same time, you've got decisions being made by airlines to fly in airspace that may be contested by the Americans. At the time they were flying, it wasn't sure what was going to happen. So you put the things together and you have an outrageous situation with uh, an inexcusable uh, action taken by the air defense system against uh, uh, this aircraft. Yeah, uh, let me go to Dave Fraser, retired General Fraser. So. The Iranians say that it was human error. They were, quote, on a war footing, and they originally have said, and I don't know how much we trust them, that it turned towards a, the plane had turned towards some kind of sensitive military installation. Again, walk us through how a surface-to-air missile, why doesn't it identify the plane as a civilian aircraft? 
Well, I think uh, Tom hit the nail on the head here. First of all, this is a failure of Iranian military planning, uh, planning that, you know, they knew they were going to strike into Iraq. They were going to put their air defense systems on high alert, and they didn't coordinate with the civilian authorities so that, you know, Yes, it was human error because these, these systems have an automated uh, process, but they, this one looks like it was uh, uh, fired by a human being. And the fact that, you know, they're saying that an airplane made a turn, that, that's crap. They knew where the airplanes were flying, what the flight plans were and things like this. This is just a failure of the Iranian command control structure to manage their airspace. Yeah, and you say it's crap, and, and, and let me go back to General Lawson. They, they, we now know, because the head of the uh, military has said they knew within a day that they'd shot it down. Then they lied for a number of days that they actually did it. So what does that tell you about, you know, how their military, their civilian uh, aviation systems were interacting? What, is it, what, what does it tell you about well, it? Well, as General Fraser said, I think it means that the interaction between them was, was faulty, extremely faulty. But it also, the, the misinformation that followed for several days talks to a regime that believes they're in control of the information when, in fact, they weren't. Uh, the uh, satellites that are associated with uh, NORAD and American intelligence were well aware that uh, a couple of uh, missiles had left the ground within seconds of the ha having oh, uh, left the right? ground. We were, even the U.S. and other intel would know right away that that had happened? My experience as a Deputy Commander NORAD would say that as soon as those missiles left the ground, they were being assessed for their, uh, their uh, threat to uh, the North American continent. That's what NORAD does, and that's what those satellites would have picked up. Interesting. So where does, so let, so, I mean, it's hard to put into words the, the uh, use senseless loss of life because of this error, Dave Fraser, General Fraser, but the, we have Canadians on the ground uh, in the NATO mission. Okay, that mission's been suspended. The RCMP mission's been suspended. Now what, given the new reality, what strategic questions does Canada and NATO have to ask in terms of the mission in Iraq? Well, the question that's going to be right now, and, and what's, what this whole situation is illustrated is the fragile nature between the Iraqis and the NATO mission itself. Um, we have to get back with the Iraqis to find out uh, what you know, do they want to carry on with the mission? And because there's still a lot of work to be done on the ground there. And uh, this is where, you know, we've got to separate what the Iranians have done to what the Iraqis want and uh, what NATO can still provide. It's still an awful lot of work to be done as a result of this. Uh, General Lawson, how, if you were advising again, and Canadians are like, all right, should we keep that NATO mission in Iraq? There's ballistic missiles fired at U.S. military positions. That precipitated a lot of this stuff. Uh, what should, how does Canada recalibrate, or if it does, its mission in Iraq? Well, I, I agree with General Fraser. There's a lot of work to be done. The problem now is that while we had the mission against Daesh, or ISIS as it's known, uh, we were in line with where Iran was as well. So we worked... You know, the enemy of the enemy is my friend, so we were working in concert right. to a common end. That's not where we are anymore. With the NATO mission in Iraq, what we're looking for are outcomes for Iraq that are no longer aligned with what Iran is looking for. We're looking for all of those things that come with a parliamentary democracy, security, freedoms, freedom of speech, and all of those things that I think Prime Minister Mahdi is looking for. That certainly isn't what the Iranians are looking for. And if the Iranians are looking for a weakened Iraq that allows them to continue to back Shia militias and carry out their proxy wars, then it's hard to 
you know, consider or come up with a scenario that has us on the ground doing the very things that General Fraser is talking about and that NATO is doing right now without being continually harassed by these militias. Well, the other element, General Fraser, is the, the threat. How would you do a threat assessment on Iran right now? Clearly the regime, because of this horrific tragedy, there's protests against them, they're weakened domestically. But for years, the architect of their proxy wars has been Soleimani, the very general that the, the U.S. killed. Is the threat from Iran now to Canadian troops in Iraq and around the world diminished by this tragedy, or would you now think it might be getting more dangerous? I think in a short word, it's going to become more dangerous because now the, the replacement for Suleimani is going to have to prove himself to be better than Suleimani, who's, who's now like a godlike figure inside of Iran. And the other thing is that during this attack, one of the uh, Shiite militia uh, leaders was killed, and so you know we've got all those you know the, the Iranian proxies around the region that are upset because Suleimani is gone. So the whole situation has become far more dangerous. Uh, can Iran control the the uh, militias that the uh, they were dealing with uh, in Iraq and sort of elsewhere? You know these are these are serious questions that puts the uh, the safety of all our women and men at risk. And going back to what Tom said, uh, really puts into question you know the missions that we were you know, working with in the region and uh, their, their future. That's interesting. So, so uh, how would you do this, the same threat assessment now? Are, are, is there more danger now from Iran? Are they going to lash out to try to increase that proxy war? I think it's an open question, but I, I think one of the things that's changed in this equation is that the Americans have now said you will pay a price for continuing these proxy activities. Uh, and that wasn't clear before. Uh, you know, they, the Americans have responded to militia attacks in Iraq, and now they've responded in a big way to the fellow who was in charge of these proxy attacks, and that's Soleimani. So they've added something that has to be taken into What's consideration. What's the strategic goal? I mean, that's been the question to the U.S. What was the strategic... No one's arguing Soleimani was a bad guy. He's got blood all over his hands. I get it. But what's the end goal? What, I mean, if it was an act of deterrence, what's the strategic end goal here, General Lawson? Well, my belief would be that as the United States is involved with NATO in strengthening Iraq, pushing Daesh down, uh, in stabilizing the region, they could not do those things if they were continually harassed from Iranian-backed militias. So what they said with a couple of forceful acts, uh, missiles against Iranian-backed militias, and then, of course, the assassination of Soleimani, is the equation's changed. We're not standing for it. Uh, D uh, Dave Fraser, General Fraser, last word to you. Uh, on that, if you're, how do we recalibrate the NATO mission given the new profile? Then, what would you be advising? Uh, working with the Iraqis and other NATO partners uh, to make sure that you know what we can do on our side uh, will help with the stability. But as as General Lawson just said, uh, the, the whole idea that we were even even remotely working with Iranians against ISIL. Uh, that was a flawed strategy from the get-go because the Iranians had different objectives and we've got to completely separate ourselves from the Iranians and put the NATO mission back onto a solid footing where we control all the factors, not just some of them, because working with uh, Iranians just is not going to be a winning strategy. Uh, gents, I appreciate it there. i got to leave it there. Major General Dave Fraser, General Tom Lawson, I thank you both for your service to the country and for joining us this morning. I really appreciate that. Coming up, the first woman has jumped into the conservative leadership race, MP Marilyn Gladu. What does she stand for? Does she have a chance? We find out next. She joins us right here on Question Period.
So on June 27th, conservatives will choose a new leader. With only six months to go, the big names still haven't formally announced. The Peter McKay's, the Ronna Ambrose's, the Jean Charest's, Pierre Paul Everett. They probably will, but two have actually come forward. A guy named Brian Brulotte, he's a longtime party organizer and a Quebec-born businessman. He's officially in the race, but so is Ontario MP Marilyn Gladue. Now, does the relatively unknown MP have the political chops to lead an increasingly fractured Conservative Party in the next election? Let's find out. She joins me right now. Marilyn Gladio, thank you for joining us and, and congratulations on jumping in. Uh, why did you thank jump you, in? What needs to change in your party? Well, Evan, in order to win in the next election, we really need to expand our base. Uh, and to do that, we need a strong and dynamic leader, but we also need to change our policy to a better balance of fiscal responsibility and social compassion. Uh, I think I'm the leader to do that. We know that Canadians, you know, they care about a good economy and jobs and reduced taxes and balanced budgets, but they also care about a credible plan for climate change and the environment. They want help for our struggling healthcare system. And they want to see compassion for people that have difficulties. We have a lot of seniors in Canada who are struggling to afford to live, veterans that are homeless, people that can't afford their prescription medications, and some tough issues coming up. So okay, uh, we need a strong leader and we need balance. Uh, a lot of people say, well, Marilyn Glad is a social conservative. She supported Andrew Scheer. She is a social conservative on LGBTQ issues. Is, are you a social conservative on that? No, I've been clear that, uh, you know, we want to stand up for the rights and freedoms of all Canadians. The LBGTQ community has been clear that they want leaders and the Prime Minister, you know, to march and to uh, indicate that they're going to support their rights. And I'm going to support their rights. I'm going to support the rights of every Canadian. Okay, so just I'll just go real quick. So you support same-sex marriage. No problem there. No problem. And you would march in a gay pride parade. And I would. And I'm going to get the chance on June 27th. Have you ever done it? I think. No, no. In my uh, local riding, sometimes I don't have a parade, but I have participated with the community, um, attend their meetings. We had a rainbow crosswalk unveil, and I was pleased to bring greetings there. It's important that every part of the community uh, is made to feel uh, loved and accepted, and I think as Canadians, we have to stop dividing ourselves and pitting one group against another. We have to stand up for everyone's rights and freedoms. What about uh, the abortion issue? It was another issue that really affected Andrew Scheer. Where are you, choice, or, or where are you on that issue? Well, I, I mean, I'm personally pro-life, although at this stage of my life, the odds of me getting pregnant are pretty much zero. That said, 77% of Canadians want to have abortion services available, and in order for them to have their rights and freedoms, we've got to have those services available. Okay, so you are personally pro-life, but you support the pro-choice and, and having abortion services. What about climate change? Absolutely. Okay, climate change. The, 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 the price on carbon has been the dividing line. I know the Conservatives have signed on to the Paris Climate Accord, but the big question is how to reach those targets. Would you support putting a price on carbon? Well, I respect the, the province's jurisdiction to put a price on carbon if they want. Um, I would tell you that uh, carbon pricing is actually not the most effective way to get an actual reduction in emissions. Europe's had uh, a carbon price for 19 years, and they've only gone down 8%. BC's had one for 10 years, and they've only gone down 1%. So I prefer uh, a regulatory regime with incentives for the companies to actually put um, the technology in place to reduce the emissions. I think that's the, the solution. 
does that mean? I mean, I mean, to be with all due respect, mm -hmm. Andrew Shear said the same thing. He said, you know, what we'll do for big emitters is we're going to have a regulatory scheme. But when you do that, you got to put a price on carbon because the, you have to say, well, once you cross this threshold, you're going to have to pay into something per uh, ton of carbon that's emitted. My question, so that's a price on carbon. So you're open to that. I'm not arguing that that's a price, but I think you need the incentive. If we look at what they did in the petrochemical industry, for example, um, you know, we had regulatory uh, constraints here in Canada to reduce emissions, and we got a, quite a substantial reduction. But in the U.S., they didn't just put the regulatory uh, impact in place. What they did was they provided incentives for those companies to actually uh, buy the technology to reduce the emissions. And so they've, uh, you know, doubled their emission reduction compared to Canada, and I think that's a, an effective thing that's been proven. It also puts the cost of the pollution um, on the people generating it and not on, you know, uh, lower income people who are struggling to pay their bills. Right. Marilyn Gladu, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. We'll watch this race closely. Coming up, they shot down the jet. Iran has now admitted it. So now what? How does Canada deal with an untrustworthy regime caught in the middle of a violent international clash. The scrum is next. We've got the former National Security Advisor, Dick Fadden, and the former Public Safety Minister, Ralph Goodale, as our special guests. Stay right here with Question Period. It is at times of tension like these that tragedies like this crash can happen, causing great loss of innocent life. President Rouhani's response to me was a commitment to collaborate to give closure to the victims, de-escalate tensions in the region, and continue this dialogue. It is the single greatest loss of Canadian life in an air disaster since the Air India bombing back in 1985. And after days of denial and lies, Iran finally admits it did it. They claim they mistook the plane for a military threat and shot it down. Now remember, it happened just hours after Iran launched ballistic missiles at U.S. military targets in Iraq. So, should Canada now trust Iran? What happens next? The Prime Minister has spoken to the Iranian President, who has promised to let Canadian investigators and families into the country. But what about justice? What about compensation? Let's bring in the scrum to find out. Tony McCharles is a senior reporter for the Toronto Star. Joyce Napier is, of course, CTV's Ottawa bureau chief. We have two special guests today. The first, Dick Fadden. He's the former national security advisor, both to Prime Ministers Harper and Trudeau, and the former head of CSIS. And Ralph Goodale is the former liberal public safety minister. Uh, good morning to all of you. I know we all share the grief for the families who are going through this. Uh, Ralph Goodale, let me just start with you. Um, now... Apparently, Iran says investigators and family members can come in. This is a very challenging uh, circumstance for Canada because we have no diplomatic relations with Iran. What are the big challenges facing Canada right now? Well, access and participation in the process uh, to make sure that it is as comprehensive and, and credible uh, as it can possibly be. Uh, I think the Prime Minister has made progress, a little bit at least, in uh, speaking with and, and making demands of the, of the uh, uh, Iranian president. Uh, that's an important first step. I think he has to keep that pressure on relentlessly on Iran, making it very clear what Canada expects uh, and pushing, pushing, pushing for the kind of access and results that we, that we need and that we demand. And secondly, uh, he has to keep that, 
that international coalition strong. Uh, the countries that, uh, uh, that involved uh, citizens who were on the aircraft that brought down, uh, obviously Canadians and Iranians, but uh, uh, there were Ukrainians, there were Brits, there were Germans and Afghans and, and others, Swedes. Uh, that coalition has to be kept together right. and the, the pressure has to be international in pushing Iran to provide the access and the answers and the accountability and ultimately the compensation that is necessary in these circumstances. Uh, Dick Fadden, the Prime Minister was asked, what are Canada going to do? And there are conservatives that have said you got to crank up sanctions like the United States have done. Others have said it's been seven years of silence since we severed diplomatic relations. This is the moment to open them. It's politically charged on both sides. How do you, what would you do? I'm not suggesting we do it tomorrow or next week. I think we have to get through this rather touchy period, you know, help the grieving families and whatnot. But I think we should take advantage in the next four or five months to try and reopen relations. I mean, I think we need to remind ourselves, we had relations with the Soviet Union when they enslaved half of Europe. We have relations with China when they treat their people in much the same way. It doesn't mean we agree with Iran when we have diplomatic relations. It means we can talk to them and we have people on the ground. So I'd say give, you know, give, time, uh, give a bit of time, uh, an opportunity to pass, and then let's try again to open these relations. So at least we can have an opportunity to tell them when we don't agree with them. Some, some of the calls for sanctions, the Conservatives, mm. for example, have been saying uh, enact Magnitsky sanctions, which are um, against human rights abusers and freeze assets in Canada and whatnot. I don't see where that takes this uh, current challenge anywhere for the government. In fact, it would complicate matters. I think their big challenge really is, and the Prime Minister is right, to focus on the needs of the families right now, get answers. Get answers for the international community. If there's ever going to be a basis for an international criminal prosecution, they need to be in there. They need to verify the investigation the Iranians have conducted. All right, Joyce, I mean, we don't have a lot of options. By the way, we do already have sanctions against Iran. Uh, you could, you could, there's lots of sanctions, That's but right. there, are, there are others that you can do, but what are Canada's options here? Well, I don't, I don't think Canada has any options, except, um, you know, the, the, the solidarity of the international community. I think that's important. I think it's important to keep that pressure on Iran, and that pressure is working. Um, we've got to remember that some, a lot of these victims were Iranian. So now the Iranian government is not only facing the anger of the international community, but of its own people. Right. And a, few, a week earlier, it was exactly the opposite. After the assassination by the Americans of Soleimani, of the, of, of the high-ranking general, all of a sudden, there was this wave of solidarity for the government. So in, in just one shot, they lost something that they hadn't had in years, which was the support of their own people. So they're having an incredibly big problem at home already. So perhaps, and I think uh, Dick is right, this is the time for Canada to perhaps start the sh long and painful process of renewing these ties with Iran. If we want to be a player in the region, if we want to have any clout, we need to have those, those relations back. I agree with that. The other element I would add is uh, the, the unpredictable element in this remains the United States. Absolutely. I agree with it, what everyone else has said. We need to also lobby the United States not to unduly back Iran into a corner. That's what they're trying to do to a considerable degree. It doesn't work with states. 
they will eventually push back and lash out incoherently. We need to work with the United States along with everybody else. We cannot ignore them just because Mr. Trump tends to be unpredictable and unhelpful. And to that extent, you know, it's not helpful when Trump, uh, by tweet, uh, encourages the protesters in Iran and warns yes. Iran, as opposed to maybe expressing solidarity and grief for the families. He hasn't publicly done that yet. He's expressed it in a private phone call to Trudeau. But it's immensely complicated things. Canada is stuck once again between a belligerent U.S. and a belligerent Iran. All right, well, how do you negotiate that, Ralph Goodell? I weigh, weigh in on that because once Iran has uh, finally admitted culpability that they did it, how does that recalibrate how Canada responds to this? Because I'll tell you, the public is mad. We want compensation, we want justice, and we want some kind of action here. Well, the, uh, the issue of compensation is one that... Uh, uh, I suspect we'll, uh, uh, we'll get to, uh, in, in, uh, in short order, whether it comes that quickly or not, mm. is, uh, is going to be a, a very tough question. Uh, but uh, you think of the, uh, the last incident involving some of these same players where an aircraft was shot down. It was, it was Iran that was demanding the compensation and launched a court proceeding to, uh, uh, to get it and ultimately got something out of that process. Years, so. so they can hardly deny the precedent that they themselves uh, have established in, in the principle of paying compensation. In the short run, there are two countries that will be especially important uh, to Canada. One of those is obviously Ukraine because they have the, uh, the special status of, uh, of being uh, responsible for that airliner. Uh, and that gives them uh, particular access that, uh, that Canada can piggyback on. Uh, and we are doing that and we should continue to do that. Uh, the other is France that may be uh, especially involved in the examination of the, of the black boxes and having access to that information and the facts that will come from that decoding and that analysis will be, uh, will be extremely important to, uh, to Canada. But nobody should be under any illusion here that this is going to be easy, even with Ukraine having some no. access there. Look, uh, the Iranians arrested the UK ambassador simply for showing up at a vigil, which then turned uh, right. into a protest. I mean, the Iranians are going to be very difficult for all of these states to deal with, yeah. and no one s should assume that that's going to facilitate Canada's search for answers. The Iranian planes, the Americans weren't easy as well. Back in 1988, and back in, 90, in 1988, downed an Iranian plane who was flying Iranian uh, airspace, and it took years for them to get compensation mm -hmm. and to this yeah. day the Americans haven't apologized and haven't said it was their fault for legal reasons obviously did not want to take responsibility so in these cases and the the, the downing of the plane over over Ukraine as well nobody is, is claiming responsibility for that one either so these are always difficult for any country and they've admitted it I, I don't want to defend Iran but they have admitted it pretty fast true they had no choice while well, the evidence was leaning towards towards a missile, but they admitted it. So, so Dick, last point to you. As if you're the former, you're the former national security advisor. A, a lot of people are wondering what advice would you be giving now? Do you think Iran? Do they go back into a shell because of this horrific uh, incident, or do they lash out uh, with more proxy wars? Like, wh what would be the national security advice right now? I think you have to remember that when you're dealing with a dictatorship, uh, their main concern is maintaining themselves in power and maintaining control over their own population. They're going to do everything and anything they have to do to, obt to, uh, to obtain those two objectives. So to some degree, it will depend on what the United States does. 
I think it's clear beyond any reasonable debate they're going to try and do something else to pay back the United States for what they did in Soleimani, and I think they will use proxies. They cannot even begin to win a face-on-face -face war with right. the United States, but they have Hamas, they have a Hezbollah, they have all sorts of other groups to use. All right, unfortunately, i got to leave it there. There's lots more to come. Mr. Goodale, always good to have you here. Mr. Fadden as well, great to see you on a very difficult day for many, many people in our country. Coming up, will they or won't they? Ron Ambrose, Peter McKay, Jean Charest, big names considering running for the conservative leadership, but will they actually take the leap? And what will a new conservative party look like? We know the rules now. We've got the first two candidates jumping into the race. Former conservative deputy leader and current CTV political commentator Lisa Raitt joins us from next. Stay right here with Question Period. So candidates are lining up to replace Andrew Scheer as the leader of the Conservative Party. Ontario MP Marilyn Gladue, who we just saw in the program. There's also Ottawa businessman Brian Berlot. He's already announced his candidacy as well. But big names like Pierre Polyevra, Aaron O'Toole, they've confirmed to CTV News that they're entering the race later this month. But what about the other heavy hitters? Peter McKay, Ronna Ambrose, Jean Charest. Can Mr. Charest overcome his liberal past, the fact that he's been advising Huawei on the Meng Wanzhou case, as the Globe and Mail reported? Is Pierre Polyevra's attack dog image an asset? Or liability. Let's bring in the scrum to find out. Michelle Carbert is uh, from the Globe and Mail. She joins us. Tonya McCharles and Joyce Napier are both back, and our special guest this round is CTV's political commentator Lisa Raitt, who's helping to run the Conservative leadership race. Uh, good to see you guys back on the scrum. Tonya, let's do it. The front runners. I mean, you got. I don't know about Gladio and Brulot. The front runners last time. Right? Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> what, what do you? What do you? It's I mean, still look the big question for this party right now in the middle of this leadership and I, I'm not sure if Lisa will agree, is whether Rana is in or out. Rana yeah. Ambrose, the former interim leader, gained both the party and herself a lot of credibility after the Harper defeat. Uh, when she served as interim leader, she brought a level of civility to the discourse. She gave principled opposition to all kinds of government policies. And she, I think, did herself such a huge service that lots of people would love to see her come back. But this yeah. has turned into a rumor-powered game yes. of chicken. Who's going to go first? Is Pierre yeah. McKay going to run if Jean Charest runs? vice versa. Who's going to run if Rana doesn't throw her name into yeah. the mix? It's it's a real game of, of guessing. I think we're going to find out more next week. I know yeah. you probably can't say too much, but I would say hang tight. The vote's in June, and that's not a lot of time, so we've got to get going soon. And I will say sources in the Rana Ambrose camp have told me that they're seriously considering it, that she feels like mm -hmm. she should do it, but it's a very difficult decision. Joyce? You know, I agree with what Tonda said about Rana Ambrose, but I think it's a little bit like we are in our little bubble, in Ottawa and thinking that Rona Ambrose is, you know, this big deal. I would like to know for the rest of the country, because really at the end of the day, is she the next prime minister? That's mm. the only question that you guys actually care about. And is she that well known? Uh, she was, yes, the interim leader of the opposition. But like, this is like, we're like total political nerds. But the real world out there, how is she perceived in that world is what I want to know. And I think we're making a bigger deal about a person than she actually is. Yeah. Well, there's winability, and you know because you've run, there's two kinds of winability, and there's the winability to win the leadership race, which is a certain kind of winability, and then there's the winability for the country. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you calibrate, like, someone like Pierre Polyevra, who's got winability in the party, but 
can he move from soldier to statesman? Well, that's what Michelle was talking about. It's not so much a game of chicken. It's trying to figure out who's in the race because right. they're going to try to hedge their bets. It's a lot of money that they have to raise. No one wants to lose face by announcing they're in and then pulling out. That's not going to work for them in terms of what their brand is. So what Canadians are going to look for is what Conservatives are thinking about what they want to see, which is somebody who can communicate effectively and that are leading policies that make sense to contemporary Canadians. But the country's different depending upon where you are and Conservatives are different depending upon where you are and who the membership is. So that's why the leader has to sell memberships. But you're still going to have to define what your party is here because this seems to have been a big confusion during yeah. the election between the social Conservatives and the more progressive ones. So the party has to define itself and say to Canadians, this is what we are selling. Yeah. Because we didn't quite know during the election exactly what it is you were selling, whether it was social conservatism or what. Mm. So I think, think that's a, I think that's a big task. A vote, a national leadership vote does that in part. It defines a party. It does. Right? Uh, and it's what the what, what policies that a leader candidate puts forward mm -hmm. and what, what the party throws its hat in for. I mean that that's does right. that is the act of yep. very act of defining itself. And you're right, yep. it is crucial for this party because they're this close, right? The mm -hmm. Liberal governments have shown this Liberal government has shown it's vulnerable. And it does make mistakes and so they have to look like a credible mm -hmm. government and waiting. All right, I got, I got a 10 seconds here. I'll just last one to Tonda. The Global Mail broke the story that uh, in his private practice, um, Jean Charest, who may declare his leadership, was working for Huawei. Now, we thought China, not Iran, was going to be the big foreign policy hey, story. Does this hurt Charest well, or not? Huawei, for one, has hired conservatives up yin-yang yin and liberals before. Uh, they are a smart company and they reach out to everybody they can to get a, a, yeah. an edge on the Why Canadian government. That's not a thing. But, but is it a perception problem for Charest in a race like that because the Conservatives have been one of the hardliners yes. in Parliament against Huawei. And it also yeah. raises the question what other skeletons are in that closet. Why is that a skeleton though? That's the question. Is it really actually a skeleton? Or is it the perceived Or is yeah. business a business? And if we're starting this way, how do we end? Exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all right, I, I got to leave it there for a minute. Lisa, Joyce, Tanya, Michelle, great to see all of you. Before we go though, uh, Canada lost an iconic figure this past week, John Crosby. I'll call him a political swordfish from the rock. He always dazzled. He always fought with intense theatricality. He passed away on Friday. Mr. Crosby's varied career from serving as a minister in his province's government to his more well-known time as a federal politician here on Parliament Hill. He was Joe Clark's finance minister. Remember, his budget brought Joe Clark's government down. Then under Prime Minister Mulroney, Mr. Crosby served for nine years as, well, he's almost the minister of everything, from justice to fisheries. He won a lot of battles. He lost many as well. Maybe the most famous is this one. Just quieting down, baby. <laughs> I resent his remarks in the House talking about quiet down, baby. I'm not his baby, and I'm nobody's baby, and I'd like him to withdraw those remarks. What an extraordinary career. They do not make politicians like John Crosby anymore. Politicians are often too packaged, too afraid to... Well, be themselves, for better or for worse, and he was always himself. He served this country very well. We thank him. We think of his family. John Crosby was 88 years old. Thank you all for watching. Take good care. We will be back here in seven short days.